Hello and welcome to the Northern Slant host with me, Roger Greer. I'm delighted today to be joined by someone who has in the past been a journalist, commentator and has worked in the Treasury and Number 10. Uh, he's now an MLA for South Belfast and the SDLP finance spokesperson, Matthew O'Toole. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me. No problem. I've got you on to speak about the SDLP's Make Change programme um, and those proposals aimed at getting the best and the brightest into the civil service and NI. Um, but before we do, I thought we'd just touch on your own life and career today, because um, it is quite interesting. You've worked in some really interesting places and you, you've returned to NI to be an MLA, obviously. But when did you leave NI initially and why? Uh, when I went to university, like a lot of people, I left to go to university in Scotland. I went to St Andrews in 2001. So um nearly 20 years ago which is obviously um depressing uh that i'm that old now but um uh, so i left in 2001 to go to university in scotland i then traveled for a bit like lots of people after university and then i uh lived in london so i was in london for um 13 or 14 years wow and whenever you went over did you think that you would come back certainly not in, possibly in as an mla at that point uh, well, I didn't know. I suppose I'm not sure. I, I mean, I didn't plan to. Is the yeah. is the is the honest answer? I, I I probably had anticipated that I wouldn't. Obviously, people you can never know them. No one can ever make plans for for um uh forever. But um like uh, which is see one of the things that I talk about is the uh rationale for people choosing to leave this place and trying to uh, remove or at least lessen the push factors so that you 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 can never and, and should never try and um sort of imply that the pull factor that someone might have to see a different part of the world whether that's just in britain or ireland or indeed further afield i don't think it's it's desirable to stop people wanting to, to see other places but what you should try and do is reduce the push factor that, that the idea that they feel they have to or they or they desperately uh, they, they desperately want to leave for um, for particular reasons. So yeah, I left um, uh, 20 years ago, and I think probably if I was asked then, I, my probable view would have been that I wasn't planning to come back, but um, I was 18 and probably more focused on the days and weeks immediately ahead of me rather than 20 years hence. Yeah, it's one of the questions I get asked most as well, living in England is, would you ever come back? Um, and I suppose you, you talk about that pull factor and you have jobs right at the heart of government. I mean, there's no bigger institutions in the UK than the Treasury in number 10. Um, what were your experiences there like? Were there any particular highlights and lowlights? Uh, well, I mean, I'll do the lowlight first. The lowlight's fairly <laughs> obvious. It's why I'm not a UK civil servant anymore, and that's Brexit. I, I um, And then the, the choices that were made by the UK government afterwards in terms of how Brexit was pursued, I really felt that was fundamentally um, uh, bad for the UK as a whole, but particularly bad for the island of Ireland, Northern Ireland in particular, British-Irish relations, all of those things, um, ultimately led to me leaving. I mean, I was working directly on that issue in terms of communications. And I felt like couldn't really, and was very, um, uh, so that was the lowlight. Um, in terms of highlights, I mean, you know, I did lots of interesting things. I mean, as a civil servant, I was someone who um, didn't agree with the government of the day politically. I was, you know, I'm probably a member of a social democratic party. Actually, when I was a, a civil servant, most of the time I was a member of the Labour Party, albeit an inactive one. Yeah. But I, my politics have always lent left. And obviously I um, 
uh, you know, now designated as an nationalist in the Northern Ireland Assembly. So it, in that way, it is slight, in both regards, is mildly um, um, uh, anomalous that I did those roles. But you do, in professional terms, I did some really fascinating things. Uh, so in terms of, um, you know, I mean, the, the highlights, I guess, for anyone who works in particularly in communications uh, in those fast-paced environments are um, really um, some of the, you know, high-pressured um, issues you deal with. I did, I, for a while, I was the economic spokesperson, which meant I was the main spokesperson in terms of macroeconomic policy. As I say, I personally disagreed with the macroeconomic policy that was being pursued by the government of the day. But um, obviously, there was a there was a huge amount of professional challenge in terms of uh, working on that stuff. It's pretty intellectually interesting and, and, and challenging. So, for example, I was there whenever the UK had its credit rating downgraded for the first time, which was, I think, in early 2013. And that was a partic particularly interesting because um, uh, the, the government of the day had hung its um, hat fairly ill-advisedly and obsessively on keeping a AAA credit rating from uh, the various ratings agencies, the ratings agencies which four or five years before had pretty much disgraced themselves or made themselves uh, just had, had re removed some of their credibility by the way they'd failed to predict some of the problems with the credit crunch and the uh, global financial crisis and uh, various institutions in 2007-8. They um, were deemed by the then British government to be um, arbiters of um, important arbiters in terms of macroeconomic and fiscal policy and they removed the UK's credit uh, AAA credit rating. This AAA credit rating had been made something of a fetish by people like George Osborne and that was lost in February 2013. So it was an interesting time to be working there. Yeah and you returned uh, to Northern Ireland then in 2020, 2019-20 to become MLA for South Belfast whenever uh, Claire Hannah won her Westminster seat in 2019 in the election. I suppose there's many complaints about the standard of MLAs and the lack of young professional level MLAs and it can be easier and an easier life and a better paid life uh, to, to work elsewhere. What led you to want to come back to be an MLA and, and I suppose what led you to the SDLP uh, particularly? Uh, well, um, uh, I got, I mean, I'll take the, again, take this, I'll take the second question first because it's the, probably the more straightforward one. I mean, I've always been drawn to the politics of the SDLP. I think the SDLP has always had the, um, uh, has tended to me anyway, to have some of the best answers in terms of the uh, the challenges that this part of the world has faced, the very profound challenges we faced around um, the structure and um, uh, sort of underpinning of the state and the society and the the history of conflict and the unresolved questions in terms of how this jurisdiction was created and the, the, the some of the things that flowed out of that and then the violence that was uh, a part of this society for so long. Um, I, I, I suppose I, I think you know the, the people that created the SDLP and the people who've who've led it have I've tended to be drawn to their analysis, not just politically, but morally and intellectually, um, uh, um, and, and not just in relation to the, you know, the Northern Ireland question or the Irish question, but also in, in relation to things like, um, you know, being a, a, a party which is, has a constitutional position, has a constitutional analysis of Northern Ireland and the Irish question in the long term, but that analysis is grounded in 
principles of reconciliation and not flag waving an identity, but in reconciliation, bringing people together, the politics of the center left, the tradition of European social democracy, all of those things I think are, are values that, that that I'm drawn to. Um, and, and, you know, in a sense we've been, we've been talking a, bit, a little bit of more with them this week with the year's anniversary of John Hume's passing. So, so that so that um uh so, so that was that's why I, I i was i've always been drawn to the politics of the sdlp and was very um proud to be asked to serve in south belfast um and then um i mean in answer to the question how did i end up doing this i mean i suppose it is slightly anomalous i was uh living in london why did i take up the role i was asked to consider putting my name forward by um uh claire hannah whom i knew and i knew colin eastwood um, uh, a little as well, and and, and I knew other people uh, in the party. Well, I didn't have a long-term plan at any stage to become a politician. Um, uh, uh, as I said, I've I've always been um, sympathetic. I you know believe the SDLP uh, um, uh, would, would have been, I suppose, my political home um, uh, here, um, but uh, but was not engaged in politics here and didn't really have any intention of getting engaged in politics here. Um, uh, part of why. I, I suppose accepted the um, uh, responsibility, um, the offer, responsibility, I guess is the better way of putting it, is that I felt it was important to take responsibility when you are. And I left the civil service and started sort of writing, shouting, tweeting about Northern Ireland. Some of that was in, in kind of journalistic form. Some of it was just doing what lots of people do now, which is being irate on social media. But I was really profoundly offended by what Brexit, hard Brexit meant for the settlement, the position of Northern Ireland, I felt it was deeply destabilizing and damaging. I felt very strongly about it, I still do. Um, uh, and uh, I just felt profoundly offended by it, to be honest, Roger, in many ways. Um, and, and some of that was tied up with some of the, my background, the choices I had made, the sense that uh, an immense trust uh, was being breached and, um, Having made, um, having said all that publicly and having been very strong on it, um, I sort of think sometimes in 2021, you know, it's very easy for people to um, being irate in social media and having opinions and influencing is important. It's not that it's not important. And I feel very important, like I'm someone who loves writing and, and I've always seen writing as, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always pursued careers that allowed me to write. I was a journalist before. And, um, but I thought, well, you know, it's important that people who believe in the political process and who are frustrated about these things, if you've offered the opportunity, should take responsibility and try and, you know, um, uh, and try and um, uh, affect things in a way that you think is positive. So I suppose that that was the answer. I felt I felt a degree of responsibility, and um, and the and it, there are um, you know in some it did involve a degree of upheaval and. Um, uh, and and ending one career in London, which was sometimes a bit more straightforward and um, uh, better remunerated, but um, but I um, but I, you know, having been asked, I thought it was important to to take responsibility, and I don't regret it. I'm not sure I've done how well how good a job I've done, but you know, I that was that was my rationale. Yeah, and I suppose how have you found it? Then it's been an interesting time to enter the assembly. We've had political and policy challenges probably like we haven't seen in a generation since you've um, since you've taken office how have you found that and with much of it being remote as well as an extra challenge yeah i mean covid has been a a lot of it has been it's been marked by two things one of which was 
the reason I got in and predictable and we knew it was going to be a, a challenge and it, it has proven to be a challenge and that's Brexit, the art workings of Brexit, the end of the transition, the protocol, all of that, the disruption and the political, um, subsequent political stress, um, uh, which was, as I said, the main reason why I had left a previous life and, and, and ended up in this one. Um, COVID was not, obviously, no one was predicting that in January. When I signed into the Assembly on the 11th of January last year, I don't think anyone, um, although, you know, people, it was being reported, we, we knew that this, there was this, um, uh, outbreak in China, um, uh, but that has really been the um, uh, the, the dominant, uh, in addition to Brexit, the dominant feature of the last year and a half, and it's made it quite, um, you know, I suppose in some ways it has been a, um, uh, it's underlined the importance of things that um, that are really important, such as, for example, in the early, you know, the lockdown one and the kind of early weeks of people being genuinely petrified um, about the, you know, the the level of uh, fatality, what you might see in society, but also just the what this was going to mean in terms of how vulnerable people lived, how we, you know, how we kind of managed as, uh, as a community and a society. And so I, I, I think in that sense, it sort of was, it was an early lesson to me in the importance of the broad kind of um, network, civil society, institute, sporting organizations, community groups, churches, all these groups that kind of um, uh, were amazing last spring in particular and kind of coming together and helping people delivering food packages and and ensuring vulnerable people were and elderly people were supported and all, all those things so that was really striking because I suppose my background has been in the kind of sort of Whitehall and journalism and the kind of in a sense politics as the theoretical and kind of the you know policy arguments and um, and um, and all that and and that so what that did, what, the, what at least what that did was give me an early lesson in the importance of ensuring that people, the, how, you know, how community groups work, how um, change is delivered, as it were, to exactly say on the ground in communities for people and people are supported and, and all that stuff. Um, it was a bit of a waffly answer, but but um, but it was it was useful in that regard. But also, you know, um, you know, it was a challenge to set up a constituency office in the. In the midst of COVID, um, but but again, a, 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 you know, a um, an early lesson in how important it is to do th to have your to have a, a constituency service, um, do it, you know, a casework operation, a um, all all of the things that representative politics is about. In addition to big arguments, um, policy debates, and the you know about the constitution or about legislation. Yeah, and there's no introduction like being thrown in at a million miles per hour. Um, and on that assembly work, I mean, um, one of the things that you brought forward recently is the, the Make Change program. Um, what is that? What's, what's the policy in a nutshell? The policy in a nutshell is a um, effectively a public service program to stimulate recruitment into the Northern Ireland civil service, but particularly um, uh, initially recruitment of uh, young people. Um, it is um, designed, I think, to answer uh, two broad connected challenges. Um, uh, um, though they're connected, they don't appear connected, but I'm trying to connect them in answering through the Make Change program. So one is a, sort of a little bit of what we talked about earlier on, the fact that we do have this issue around brain drain. There is this um, uh, push factor, clearly, that sort of nudges lots of um, people uh, here, both graduates and school leavers, either to go to university elsewhere or to 
uh, pursue their careers elsewhere once they've graduated from university. Um, uh, and um, we know that I mean, Pivotal did a really interesting report. I know we're doing more work on this, the, the think tank. I know we're doing more work on the, um, on, you know, on, on educational uh, immigration. And, and as, as I think I said earlier, I'm, I am in no way a down on people leaving per se or people wanting to live abroad for a while. What, what I'm about is just trying to reduce the push factor, not criticize people for be having feeling a pull to, 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 to travel or to, to explore the world. I mean, there's a, a very long um, uh, tradition of that from this whole island. But um, we know that there is a real challenge around young people feeling um, that uh, opportunity, not only opportunity lies elsewhere, their careers lie, lie elsewhere, but also people who are perhaps interested in careers in public service. They may be interested in politics, but might not be, they might be very frustrated with politics here. And um, they might be interested in politics or, but in a kind of policy sense, more than a the kind of capital P political activism sense, they might be interested in, um, you know, working in a civil service in Britain or in uh, Dublin or in the EU or wherever. Um, but they might see those as uh, attractive opportunities where they can do interesting, challenging things and try and solve problems. But then they don't really seem to think, associate that kind of career here in Northern Ireland uh, as an opportunity. Then we have the other, um, and, then, and, then, and there was also this challenge around people feel that change here happens too slowly, that it's too difficult to, to move the society forward. Yes, that is true in relation to the sectarianism question and, the, and all that, but also it's, too, I think, in relation to other policy challenges, climate change being an obvious one, we're the only, we know we're, we're a laggard in terms of climate mitigation, like it's, it's shocking and it, and it frustrates lots of young people. But then there's the other challenge I want to solve, which is that we have um, a civil service, which is real, it does have real profound issues, of, and that's not to be down on existing civil servants who have worked really hard uh, in many cases over to, to deliver um, support through COVID. But it is to say that, for example, we have like we just have a, a crisis in age terms. There's no other way of describing it. Like 80% of our senior civil service are over the age of 50. That's just, you know, you, there's no, you can't look at that as anything other than a real problem because within a decade, what happens? You either, uh, you know, you have a huge loss of expertise, you you know, mass retirement, presumably of, of, of senior leadership, and then either having to develop people really quickly or or simply having a massive vacuum at the top. And, and that is critical. Yeah. for a number of reasons because it's completely critical so we need to solve both of those problems we need to get young people uh, into our into our civil service but we also want to inspire them that it's possible to make change so the make change program to come to the meat of the actual proposal is about getting young people in and um uh, giving them both leadership training but also assigning them projects matched to the program for government which uh, a new program for government will presumably be agreed next year when a new uh, executive is formed after the assembly elections and there will be cross-cutting priorities what i want to make change program what our party wants to make change program to do is to say to the young graduate who might think about going to work for an international charity or some other uh, somewhere else, some some something else somewhere else to think well this might be an interesting exciting prestigious challenging opportunity for me here they would go and work on for example um something like an inner it could be uh, an inner city literacy project that could be working with community groups in inner city Belfast and that would be matched to a program for government priority around uh, reduce uh, poverty reduction and um, they wouldn't necessarily just be sitting in an office doing um, uh, you know in, in, a, in, a, in a department they would be 
delivering a project in a cross-cutting sense. They, then, as with the conventional fast stream, which unfortunately discontinued in Northern Ireland, they would then have preferential career opportunities after that because this would be about you know giving them uh, real operational and project delivery experience uh, and and then being tested against that um, based on because it's, it is about delivering change here. It's not just about giving opportunities to it is about the opportunity but it's also about delivering the change and ensuring that they are um that that, that we're delivering against those program for government priorities and so that the, the, the idea is that we start next year with graduates and um, at a pilot level and that's what i've um written in, in the proposal and that's what we've the slp has suggested to the other parties but also critically senior civil the head of the, the new head of the civil service the, the the outgoing head of the civil service the finance minister i hope that they will buy into it in some form i think we could start in pilot form next summer that could be pilot form could be half a dozen people you know just in it in um uh, it, so it, it can be started in, in in small scale but then expand it out you could start it with uh as i say, as I say you could start it with graduates but then I think it could and should be expanded then into apprenticeships because this is um uh i don't just want to create it's not about graduates graduates are not the uh, be all and end all um of uh, of doing good government here uh, for example i think we could have a an apprenticeship strand to it i think um i won't go into minute detail but i think how that would work is after a period of six months or a year when we had the initial cohort of graduates in uh, i think um arm's length bodies for example will then know the, the type of capacity they need to deliver uh, on, in an administrative sense. If it's the Belfast Trust, they'll know how many um, apprentices they need to help deliver their targets against the program for government. So they might say, well, I want, we want 10 make change apprentices. And then once we've established that strand, I think we can broaden it out into mid-career professionals. And we can say, well, you are, it's not just about graduates, it's not just about apprentices, it's not just about young people. You 30-something teacher, 40-something engineer, 50-something um, uh, academic accountant, uh, do you want to work in public service for either the rest of your career or for a two or three year period to uh, accelerate your skills and make change and we'll design part of the program for you so that you can come in um, and, and, and lend your expertise to particular projects like graduates they'd be working on projects matched to program for government priorities and um, so it's a it's quite a big proposal um, yeah. but uh, I, I hope that other parties can get behind it I mean I I can't see how it should be how it could be politically controversial and um, but uh, I also hope that the civil service leadership can see it as an opportunity to not just revitalize the civil service, but um, uh, uh, but create a new, I think, atmosphere around the concept of public service, a new prestige and inspiration around around it. And I think that is something, um, if we're honest with ourselves, that we need here. Yeah, and if you've got a few minutes, I'll probably touch on that a little bit more. I mean, is it intended to work like the fast stream in the UK government? And apart from making the program available and the prestige behind it, I mean, what are we going to do to entice young people to join if there are issues with the civil service at the minute um, and those are very public? What incentives, um, rather than going to GB, you know, what incentives are there to do this rather than to go to GB, um, to work in the fast stream in the UK government or to go in the private sector and make a few a few quid? Yeah, well, I think um, uh, those are good questions. I mean, I, mean, I would say, you know, uh, like, first of all, um, you know, you can never... You can't take away the incentive of living. Uh, this goes back to what I said before. I'm not down on people wanting to leave. And I've spent the last 20 years of my life living in, uh, well, the last basically 14, whatever it was, however many years I lived in London, a decade and a half. Um, uh, you know, if someone has an if someone really wants to live in a really big city, a global city, um, they may want to, that. That's they'll have to leave here. They'll have to leave the island of Ireland, not just Northern Ireland. Um, 
uh, not that I mean there are amazing global opportunities in Dublin as well. In case there's anyone watching who's offended by me, say, but, it, but you know, uh, the if they, that out. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. If they do want to, you know, if they or if they want to live overseas, if they want to live outside these islands, they may want to live in Paris. They may want to live in New York. Yeah, you can't remove that incentive. It's not you know no scheme to um, no scheme to make the the Northern Ireland Civil Service uh, to revitalize the Northern Ireland Civil Service and get more young people into it is going to make. Paris or San Francisco, a le less attractive prospect for someone who wants to, to go and live in those cities, nor, nor should we try. But yeah. um, there will be a cohort of people, I think, who, would be who will be attracted um, to the opportunity to uh, further their career by doing challenging, um, rewarding public service roles here. And they, those roles should be prestigious. So that comes on to the next bit. How does it compare? How would it compare with the fast stream in Britain? Well, the fast stream there was a fast stream uh in Northern Ireland too um which has basically been discontinued was i think it's been discontinued since about 2014. Mm -hmm. they are at the minute design trying to design some kind of new graduate entry system in the Northern Ireland civil service there's not much clarity on how it's going to work and in order for it i think there is a job to be done in terms of creating uh, an ethos a uh, a uh, a, a brand, frankly, a cachet that um, that people feel is um, is uh, is exciting and new, um, uh, and, and I think that's some of what this is about. I think in a, so, it, it, in one sense, it would be like the fast stream in that the, the on all three strands. My view is that you would have this goes for the apprentices as well, and um, unsuccessful completion of the make change um, your of your make change program. Uh, uh, um, training, which would be about, it, because it would be a mix of training, I should have said, in addition to the project you work on, I think there should be mentoring and, and some degree of, of leadership and policy training. So it, once you've completed that and, and you're, the project you're assigned, that could be two years, it could be three years. Um, uh, I think it is right that, that uh, you are then, and if you know, that uh, enables you to potential um, uh, fast-tracked um, uh, opportunities and, and, and promotion uh, where you've where you've delivered. I mean, you'd have to, you can't, it's not an automatic, it shouldn't be automatic. It should be based on, um, on, on, um, on, 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 you know, on, on assessment. And, that, and that's the whole, whole purpose of having a properly designed and um, uh, a properly designed um, system. Uh, but yeah, I do think a bit like the fast stream that it should be seen as a, uh, an opportunity to, 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 um, to, to advance as well as an opportunity to make positive change. And part of the reason why I think you need to have that is if we recognize that we have a challenge around getting people into the senior civil service um, or, or, you know, get, you know, we just have a pipeline problem, frankly, with yeah. um, young people to do those leadership roles in the next couple of decades, then you do need ambitious people to, um, to, to get into that pipeline and to, and to fill those roles. So yeah, I think in that way, it, it, there, you know, you do want to create that that sense of opportunity. And I think it's also important on the apprentice um, on the apprentice strand. I mean, we would be very clear that the taking people on as make change apprentices, that th th there is a link from um, going in as a school leaver to um, moving into managerial and then um, and then into leadership roles as well, because you know. Um, in, in, in like in too many cases there there are 
um, the, the idea of like that there are graduate managerial roles and then administrative roles, which are not for, you know, that's old hat as well. I think the, the whole purpose of make the Make Change Apprenticeship Strand should be giving people the opportunity to um, build, to make change as well, but also to build their professional capabilities. I mean, you would get a, a you know, a formal apprenticeship and a BTEC or whatever particular um, uh, uh, qualification the people who design the scheme deem appropriate. And then you would have the opportunity to to, to advance into into um, into managerial uh, grades should should you have should you be assessed that you're that you're ready for it so I, yes I think it is about incentivizing um, people that that um, that that this is an opportunity for them to advance um, uh, uh, you know there's a vir there's a, there's a kind of I think virtuous circle there yeah that's great. and it's creating that pathway um, and just fine I mean reform the in the civil service would of course make a real difference to delivery and um, and governing NI more effectively but so as many of the issues that we face um, and the blockers to progress are are political rather than policy you know we look at um, you know in previous episodes we've uh, talked with other guests about you know much of the bandwidth being taken up dealing with constitutional issues or day-to-day -day political battles rather than say education reform and the crises there um, or um, you know, healthcare reform we've had five independent reports on healthcare we know we know what some of these challenges are but you know the political blockers are there as well and we have fantastic unis and businesses you know, if we work to develop the civil service and reform there is our underlying blocker political and how do we how do we shift that uh pardon me uh, well yes it is um you know in many ways that, that, that like the, the the purpose of this proposal the make change proposal is not to claim that the the civil service is first of all not to say the civil service is um okay. yeah the root of the root of all problems or that this will solve all our problems i mean this is a just you know this is a solution for particular issues that exist um but there will still be um uh other challenges that exist around our politics and how dysfunctional our politics are particularly dysfunctional around those two big parties um the, there are multiple interlocking um uh challenges with our politics that relate to our society and um, and, and some of the unresolved issues that emanate from from our history. Um, so you know, um, part of the challenge with making progress here is that too often I think there's a superstructure of like, well, my God, this is so much. There are so many yeah. problems that trying to do one is just like no, like. But so the the answer to the question, like not do like not trying to make uh progress in terms of the civil service um is not um you know dysfunctional politics is not an excuse not to try your best to um, improve the civil service you know i actually think on um on on some of the other questions you've raised it's important that we have a um a high functioning um uh civil civil service that is um uh able to deal with those challenges too i'm not that's, yeah i'm not saying that they aren't now but there are certainly issues that have been highlighted by significant reports yeah. that we all know about yeah. um it is important that we have a high functioning civil service to help us deal with those challenges that includes by the way you know whether it's health service reform whatever else it also includes the constitution i mean i'm you know um there are a whole basket of things uh, personally i i'm not someone who thinks you can 
like I, I don't think it's it's not credible or democratic to tell people you can't ever debate the constitution and and people have um th there is a uh, a legitimate debate about the constitution the point i would make uh, and um is that in a sense a lot of these bits of improvement are sort of constitution blind actually i think um having a high functioning civil service is um uh, to the extent that you can improve it and 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 get you know get people in i think actually strangely it's um that doesn't um in order to uh, whatever your constitutional aspiration or whether you have no constitutional aspiration and, and want to not, not want to move on like i think like it it should work for everyone you yeah. know to take if you believe in constitutional change so for example if you believe in new ireland some form of new uh, changed ireland united ireland at some point in the in the years to come you're going to need a, re a cohort of really able civil servants to help manage that and to to to, to guide the administrative path towards um, making that work you can't there's no um the idea that just having a, a like a totally dysfunctional um uh, administration um up here is just a guide like you know that sometimes yeah. that there is that view that that's a if you're an asset it's like you just let it fail it's fine um i personally don't think that night because i think you know i mean and i do believe in constitutional change and i think you know you but that doesn't mean not having this place functioning as well as it can be because i think the arguments will if you believe in constitutional change when when the time comes to have that debate in more acute electoral terms we will obviously we'll know we'll it will be it will be there will be other challenges around that that we can all predict but um but i but i think you know you need a you need a high functioning um civil service in order to to deal with what what, what will be changed and of course it goes without saying um that by the same token you know if you believe in, in the constitutional uh, status quo you you um you should also accept that there are, you know, you shouldn't sort of pretend that like it's all grand and we don't need major work on these things. You should be about make, making it work as as well as it possibly can. So my strong view is that it's constant. There are many things that are constitution blind, and in the sense, the the debate about the constitution should be about how we do things better anyway. It should be about. It shouldn't just be about um, the the. Um, the emotional identity questions those questions are part of it and i'm not naive enough to think that they will go away but um uh but but it also should be about healthcare, job creation and cl the climate emergency all of those things so if you believe in that then you also should believe that you want to have the best possible people uh working uh for um the government whatever the whatever the final position around sovereignty or, or, or statehood is yeah and um i've taken up way too much of your time so thank you very much for going through all that it's a really interesting proposal and um i'll be delighted to see how it um or be interested to see how it, how, how it pans out um i think it certainly would have gone towards helping me to possibly stay in northern ireland a little bit further had it been uh this might be a head start on your on your interview if if, if they decide <laughs> and it gets implemented in the, in the years to come. Well, here's here's hoping. But uh, Matthew, thanks for really much. Thanks very much for uh, for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate thanks, it. Roger. And uh, thank you. Forward to speaking to you again soon. Roger, bye. Cheers.